It's the B-Ball Breakdown with Coach Nick on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. Coming to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Coach Nick. Hey, sports fans. It's Coach Nick here. And this is the B-Ball Breakdown. As always, we are here every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific or 8 p.m. Eastern, depending on where you are in the country. And, as always, we speak about the NBA. We give you the breakdown, the X's and O's, the innuendo, perhaps, if that's going on as well. Lots of things to talk about about the NBA every week. And we got certainly a lot to talk about as far as the playoffs are going. Today, on my YouTube channel, B-Ball Breakdown, I dropped a really cool video, the most fascinating matchup in the playoffs this year so far, and that has been the, the, the matchup of Kevin Durant and Drew Holiday guarding each other on both ends of the floor. It was already a surprise to me that uh, Alvin Gentry would try and put Drew on KD, considering there's a seven or eight inch height difference. But then they flipped it and then had KD guard Drew. And so it's been a back and forth and pretty interesting the way they're attacking and the way they're using uh, that leverage to get good shots for both, uh, both players. Uh, I've certainly been impressed with the way Drew has been taking KD to the basket and scoring near the rim. I, I was surprised about that, considering KD has a shot-blocking aptitude. But certainly you'd see KD go down and back him down in the post a lot more than he would have done in the regular season that we saw. So a really intriguing matchup. And, of course, my suggestion at the end uh, for Gentry will hopefully be seen tonight when they play. So no flipping until we're done with the show. But then you can head over to the Western Conference games, which are in full swing right now. We have a great show coming up for you today, though. Uh, we have a contributor for the B-Ball Breakdown family, Brady Klopfer. And he's going to come on and we're going to talk about the Sixers a little bit and what they're doing and what it means in the grand scheme of things and the uh, whole uh, process, if you will. So that is an interesting conversation. Then we have Mike Zavano, who's a writer for Fear of the Sword, who's going to come on and discuss what the Cavaliers did to the Toronto Raptors and whether or not they were just hiding all this good stuff in the regular season to, to lull everybody into a false sense of security and then all of a sudden put the hammer down. Or is it just sort of a lucky turn of events or just a nice combination of both? And then we'll have Jared Weiss, friend, uh, best friend of the breakdown at this point, come on and discuss everything else we have to talk about in the playoffs. So, great show. Don't go anywhere, even though you might hear a couple little commercials for, the, uh, for the, our sponsors. But don't go anywhere. We're going to be right back with a great show on the B-Ball Breakdown. It's the B-Ball Breakdown with Coach Nick on SB Nation Radio. Coming to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Coach Nick. Hey, sports fans. Welcome back. This is the B-Ball Breakdown. I am Coach Nick, and we are here to talk playoffs, specifically the Eastern Conference, as the games in the West are going on right now. I'm sure you're going to want to flip over there, but don't flip over there just yet until our show is over. I'm sure there'll be plenty of basketball after we're done. But before we get to that part, I want to bring on an especial esteemed guest, friend of the breakdown, Brady Klopfer, who is the writer for B-Ball Breakdown and SB Nation, and is going to have some interesting takes for us on what's going on in the East. So, Brady, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having Cool. Well, listen, let's, let's get into it. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the Sixers here. They hung on. They didn't get swept. Is this a good thing for them? Did they learn something from this? Is this going to carry them through the next several games? What do you think? 
is definitely a good thing. Even if they lose tomorrow, at this point, they're playing for the future. They're playing for next year and the next five years, really. Every game that they play this postseason is critical and paramount to that growth and that development. They're not going to win the NBA Finals. They're probably not going to get out of this series. That would be unprecedented. But every extra 48 minutes that they get to play is 48 more minutes that their young core gets to learn how to operate in a high-pressure situation. And that's going to pay huge dividends next year and in the coming years. You know, that is a really good point because obviously as you are going from the bottom where they were tanking for so many years to get to where they eventually want to go, you're going to have to sort of exist, right, in this sort of, you know, in that area that nobody wants to be in. But probably for at least one year, right, you might get stuck in that, you know, fourth, third, fourth, fifth seed and then, you know, have to deal with that until you can make the next jump. Yeah, and it's it's fun to see that because normally those teams that fall into that, you know, three to six or seven seed range – are teams that are kind of middling in the middle and you know that they don't really have an easy avenue to get better. You don't normally see these up-and-coming teams slide in as high as they did, make it to the second round of the playoffs. So it's fun to see a team that you know, this team's probably going to play in multiple NBA finals right. down the road. And it's fun to see, you know, pardon the cliche, but it's fun to see that process playing out right now. Absolutely. And it's like, I think the key here is that this is not like a small market team that's like overachieving, maybe like we saw that the Atlanta Hawks do a few years ago. This is actually, they have two bona fide stars. Mm -hmm. And it's just a question of can they get the appropriate pieces around them and can they get the culture changed enough? I think that we kind of put to bed this notion of culture and like what, what the, there, there are no long term effects to losing for several years in a row, I don't think, once you start winning. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I just think that people forget about that pretty quickly once you start to win a little bit and they've gotten the taste. So uh, what do you think? What do you think they have to do right now? What do they discover in game four that like, unlo- oh, sorry, game three that unlocks some stuff for them that maybe they could go for? What's happening now in those games that, that helped them? Well, I think they really went back to the roots a little bit just in terms of spacing the floor and sharing the ball. Uh, they became a little bit isolation heavy earlier on in the series you could see that they were getting a little bit desperate. They were getting a little, their inexperience was shown. And they started having each player try to make something happen, try to be that hero that they thought the team needed. And I really liked that they switched and went with TJ McConnell. It was an unconventional move, but you get that extra spacing since Cutton hadn't been shooting very well. And you get that extra playmaker, more importantly, so that Ben Simmons isn't stuck having to do everything himself, which was really bogging down the offense a little bit. As good as he is, when they were just giving him the ball and asking him to do something, Boston was too good for that. They were too smart for that defensively, and they were able to really shut shut it down when Philadelphia only had one or two options in each offensive set. Now they're sharing the ball. They're moving the ball. They're getting into their sets without a clear idea of who needs to finish the set and waiting to see what opening materializes and that's what they need to do especially against such a well-coached team like Boston is they need to keep moving the ball and keep that spacing on the floor 
Right. And, you know, T.J. McConnell's a guy who I've loved uh, for this whole time. In fact, if I do a video on this game, it should be on him alone. Uh, although there's a lot of talk about the refereeing, which we could talk about for briefly. But I'm looking at T.J. McConnell's uh, yes. game logs, by the way, really quickly. And so in game one, he played six minutes and they got blown out. And then in game two, he played 17 minutes. They lost by five. And they played 14 in the game three. They lost by three. So it seems like a real clear-cut case here that they uh, that when he's out there, the games are closer and they play better. I really think they do. It, it's he gives them something that no really does on that team. And just the ability to give Ben Simmons the freedom to not be the primary ball handler and the primary playmaker every time down the floor, it just opens up different options on offense instead of them repeating the same things over and over. Now, do you think that was there a connection between TJ McConnell in the starting lineup and a guy like Dario Saric going off for 25 points? I do think so. I, you know, I think part of it is just that, you know, Sarge stepped up and had a better game. Um, but I think McConnell really increases the flow of the offense and really increases the spacing. And you saw Sarge get for the times when he was wide open. And beyond that, I'm a huge Ben Simmons fan, but obviously the inability to shoot it gives an opening to a team that is as great defensively as Boston is to exploit a weakness. And anytime Simmons has the ball 20 feet from the hoop, Boston is setting back on him, and they're really just five on four and having a huge advantage, and that really takes away so much. When McConnell is handling the ball, Simmons gets to get moved closer the hoop and the defense can't lag off of him the same way and a player like Saric or even a player like Redick and Bellinelli who didn't have the best games but they were able to consistently get open for good shots um, those kinds of dominoes fall when you put a guy like McConnell into the lineup. For sure. Now is this the end of Covington's uh, role on the team like, and not necessarily on the team but he played 24 minutes in game four, sorry game three and then 19 in game four uh, and scored very little uh, in those games and uh, and they won, or they, and they won this last one. So I, I guess it looks to me like maybe he's going to get you know even less run in Game Five. Yeah, I think he'll get a little less, but I think they're they're still going to put him in, and and Brett Brown will see what he can do. A very good defensive option that they kind of lack going against both Tatum and Brown. They just they need some more defensive options there on the perimeter with those bigger and faster and stronger players. Um, so I think he'll get into the game and opportunity, but I think Brett Brown will have a pretty quick trigger with putting him back on the bench if, if things aren't working. Because in series, for as good of a season as he's had, he has just been a little hesitant. He hasn't looked comfortable offensively, not just in the fact that he's not making his shots, but he's not moving as much. He's not passing as much. He's, he's causing things to stick a little bit more than they can afford. And I think if that continues tonight, uh, we're not going to see very many minutes from him at all. For sure. And there's actually, you know, you don't have a very long leash when you're talking about an elimination game. Again, uh, this one's going to be in Boston. So do you, what do you think? Do you think that they're going to close it out uh, tomorrow? I actually think Philadelphia is going to win another one. Oh. I like the momentum that we're seeing from them. I like the fight. I think, you know, for a team that young to be down 3-0 and still come out to play 
still execute down the stretch. Uh, they showed that they're not scared. They're not going to wilt. I, I can see them learning every game as they get used to how things are different in the playoffs, how things are different against a team that is very good and that is coached by one of the best coaches in the league. Um, and they're, they're really evolving with each game. I, I still don't think they win the series, obviously, but I think they steal a game on the road. Wow. Well, that's a bold prediction. We'll have to wait and see how that plays bold out. Bold prediction. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I, I kind of like it. I like it. We'll see. I, I don't I don't know. I just don't have a good feeling about it. It just feels like they're going to be in Boston. It's going to be a lot of a raucous crowd, and, and uh, you can have, you're probably going to get drunk, Bellinelli, in this one, and we'll see what happens. But Brady, thanks for coming on the show. I think I really appreciate you breaking it down. You can follow him at Brady Klopfer MBA, which is with a K, for all of your NBA needs and wants and desires. And you can also read about him or read his articles over at B-Ball Breakdown, so don't miss that. And don't go anywhere, sports fans. We will be right back after this word from our sponsor on the B-Ball Breakdown. Are you afraid of losing your hair? It's a very real possibility. And in the past, we'd have to shrug and wear our Just Another Sexy Bald Guy t-shirts. But not anymore. 4hims.com is a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. Hims will connect you with real doctors with medical-grade solutions to get the hair growing back on your head. No awkward doctor visits where you have to bend over and cough. No wasting time with a bunch of nervous people in the waiting room. Just open up that browser window, type in F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com, and the solution to your problems gets shipped to your door. If you order now, you'll get a trial month of hymns for just 5 bucks today, right now, while supplies last. See website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. All you have to do is go to 4 dot com slash Coach Nick. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash Coach Nick. And throw away that other t-shirt that says, it's not a bald spot, it's a solar panel for a sex machine. It's the B-Ball Breakdown with Coach Nick on SB Nation Radio. Coming to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Coach Nick. What is up, sports fans? It is Coach Nick. We are back here on the B-Ball Breakdown. I'm here every Tuesday, don't forget that, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern Time talk all about the NBA. We get into analytics, we get into X's and O's, we get into rumor and innuendo, if we can find some of that, as there always seems to be that in the NBA these days. Uh, we are knee-deep in the playoffs, too, and a lot of intriguing stuff. Uh, the, the, the video I did today was really great about the KD versus uh, Drew Holiday matchup, so definitely check that out over on YouTube at the B-Ball Breakdown channel. But let's shift our focus over to the Cleveland Cavaliers because they closed out the Toronto Raptors last night in a sweep. And who better to bring on to discuss what's going on in the Cleveland Cavalier camp is Mike Zavano, who's a writer for Fear the Sword and the Cavalytics podcast. He doesn't write for the Cavalytics podcast. He actually records the Cavalytics podcast. So, Mike, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, it's time to get down and dirty here because nothing that we saw in the first round against the Pacers indicated that they would sweep the Raptors. I'm not even sure much that we saw during the regular season indicated they would sweep the Raptors. So my first question to you is, is this some sort of, you know, mind uh, screwing over where they decided to hide every all this good stuff from everybody until the playoffs? Um. I don't know necessarily if that's it, but I think it's it's certainly part of what's going on. I mean, Kyle Korver, I think, was kind of kept on ice during the regular season more than people realize. 
there were, you know, some stretches, especially when things were kind of going poorly, uh, you know, January, February, where Corver really wasn't playing as much as you, you thought he should be. Um, he's now obviously in the starting lineup and, and been producing uh, quite well. You know, he has a 9.4 net rating in the playoffs, which is second only to George Hill. And just inserting him in him in the starting lineup, uh, playing him alongside LeBron James, I think has certainly made a difference with some of the actions that the Cavs have been running, whether it's their elbow series, uh, you know, whether it's LeBron post-ups with staggers on the weak side for Corver. Uh, you know, sometimes they're running the uh, LeBron and Hill or Love and Hill pick and rolls with the empty strong side corner. Uh, and just Corver's gravity on some of those actions really opens up the floor, especially when you're playing in this five-out uh, new starting lineup that the Cavs have debuted. Uh, all very good points. In fact, I caught it yesterday, and I don't think people wanted to acknowledge or thought it was that big of a deal, but they had a play where they ran corner in the left uh, Corver in the left corner uh, with LeBron in the high post of the elbow, and he already my, my take on it was was that he had seen the way that. Um, this was lining up. He was going to get a backdoor pass to Corver for a layup way ahead of time. He signals kind of behind his back, I thought, to Corver to go cut when I catch it. Uh, is that a common play where you see that? Or Because, by the way, Love was coming to set a pin down for him. So I, I know he has an option to cut backdoor, but do you, have you seen that before where LeBron can kind of you know uh, call that play out ahead of time as a read? Yeah, I think that both LeBron and Corver recognized there that Kyle Lowry was playing on top of that pin. Uh, for a lot of the game last night when he was on Kyle Korver. Uh, you know, the Raptors were in lock and trail for a lot of uh, the first three games. I think they tried to make that adjustment to be on top of the pin. Uh, they tried to switch in game two to take away Korver, and that's really when you saw Kevin Love get going. So, um, you know, what, when once Kyle Lowry was on top of that pin, Korver was able to, to get back door. Uh, he finished 4-4 four of four from the restricted area in the – uh, second round there and I think that you know a lot of those replays just come from the chemistry that he and LeBron have built on the floor together over the last year and a half um, and then you see you know if you're going to switch things to take away Kyle Korver Kevin Love's going to post you up in mismatches so I think that this starting lineup that the Cavs have uh, has really given teams a lot of problems just in terms of you know how to guard them especially when they're shooting well i mean jr smith was 10 of 13 from three in the in the second round against toronto which is obviously monstrous but i've been tracking kevin love and george hill together because you know george hill was injured for a lot of that indiana series i thought that it was a large reason why the Cavs struggled offensively they played 296 minutes together in the regular season playoffs obviously a small sample size but you know that's kind of all we have with this team they have a 122 offensive rating, a 106 defensive rating, so uh, plus 16 net rating in those minutes. And, you know, we don't really know what the ceiling of this team is, but, you know, everything with Love and Hill together in this new starting lineup kind of suggests that, that it could be fairly high. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think that's the crux of the matter is they simply didn't have a lot of time to gel. And so even if you saw it in the regular season a little bit, it might not have looked as good as it does now just based on the fact that they've had a little more time. Although certainly to try and throw this out there and meld this all thing in the playoffs, I, sus I suspect was sort of what was going on in the first round. Although I, I suppose the other issue there was that Hill was out for uh, – how many games was he out in the first round? Well, he, he hurt the back in, in game one, so he missed some of game one uh, when he was kind of injured. He missed all of games uh, – four, five, and six, as well as half of game three. So, 
I think that once the back was injured, I mean, it was kind of hard to count on him uh, really until that second half of Game 7. And then he's looked, I think, like he's turned a corner starting really in Game 3 of the Raptors series. You know, I did a video a couple of days ago now, I'm not sure if you saw it, where I broke down sort of how each of these offenses, the Raptors and the, and the Cavaliers, were attacking. And the thing that struck me most was that the Cavaliers simply had were, were kind of ruthless in their identification and then execution of attacking the mismatches that they had. And they would not there, there was no delay, and they were able to find it. Now, obviously, that has a lot to do with just having LeBron James on the floor. Um, but did, was that the kind of thing that you're seeing? I mean, would you say that that was sort of the, uh, the, the biggest advantage, I suppose, for the Cavaliers, was that the way they ran their offense tended to be just better than what the Raptors were doing? Yeah, I mean, I think that the Raptors just aren't a team that has a defensive scheme designed to match up well with the Cavaliers. And, you know, for all people want to say the Raptors are a great team, which they are, uh, I don't think you can look at these things in a vacuum. Um, and when you're a team that doesn't switch off ball, uh, you play a drop pick and roll coverage. I think that those are two things that just aren't going to get the job done against the Cavs in the playoffs. And, you know, Toronto, they knew kind of that Cleveland was going to be what was standing between them in the finals. And I thought that they did well to overhaul their offense in the off season, but you know, they they kind of reverted their defense back to a scheme that was just never going to work against LeBron. And I think that that provides a decent contrast against what we're going to see likely in the next round with Houston that overhauled its defense entirely to match up with golden state by switching everything. And, you know, I don't know if that's going to work for Houston when it comes, you know, down to, to, to the wire there, but I think that Houston at least putting that scheme in place and designing their defense around the Warriors is a stark contrast with what the Raptors did. So a lot of people, you know, have this kind of philosophy that when you're guarding the Cavaliers, that you can sort of let LeBron score as much as he can and just shut down everybody else. And that's a recipe to win. But I don't know. After watching this four games against the Raptors, I kind of don't feel like, again, and watching the Raptors, by the way, kind of just basically play a one-on-one with LeBron, I don't think you can do that and win. And I'm kind of curious what you think about that and in this team and this year. I thought that the Raptors' scheme discipline was fairly poor um, in trying to execute that plan. I thought that a lot of times, whether it was you know playing JV and Ibaka together, or just having a center on the floor, or just not being used to what the Cavs were going to run. I thought that a lot of times they left guys open. I mean, LeBron ends up averaging 11 assists per game in a series where Toronto came out beforehand and said that they wanted to make him into a scorer. So I think that Indiana did a better job in terms of their scheme discipline and staying home. They obviously had uh, you know, a solid, strong defender in Bogdanovich down in the post to kind of be physical with LeBron. I mean, I would fully expect if if the next series is Boston for Brad Stevens' plan to kind of be, we're going to play LeBron one-on-one straight up, whether it's with Marcus Morris, whether it's with uh, Ojale, whether it's with maybe even Horford or Tatum, and we're going to try to switch everything, you know, on the wings, and we're going to take away Kyle Korver, and we're going to try to take away J.R. Smith and say, if you beat us, LeBron, it's going to be with twos, it's not going to be with threes, and we're going to see what happens from there. Uh, that that all makes sense to me. Um, I just felt like you know there are, when he gets going like that. I mean that was the key. He just and by the way, it also could have been specifically about Toronto because every shot he makes, every tough two, every step back, every fadeaway is just three years worth of mental anguish uh, that maybe the right. Celtics don't have when they go up against him. But 
Uh, interesting. I, I think that, um, you know, if they're going to take a page out of the Pacers book, which seemed to work a lot better than anything the Raptors did, was, you know, what I thought Bogdanovich did the best was front LeBron when they tried to post him up. And they had really not a lot of answers for that. I, I, I didn't see. Did you? No, I think you're right. I mean, I think that the general physicality, uh, both from Bogdanovich getting in front of LeBron, you know, making those catches tougher, further away from the rim, I thought that those were successful strategies to, if if nothing else, at least slow everything down. So, you know, instead of getting into your actions with 20 seconds left on the shot clock, you might get into them with 13 seconds left on the shot clock, and all of a sudden the optionality of your offense decreases. Another great point, which is when you watch a team like the uh, the Rockets, although they're a little bit slower these days, they still get into their half-court sets quickly, and certainly the Warriors do too with plenty of time to get all the cutting and movement. So that should be interesting as well. And again, yeah, I would think that the Celtics would play with a little bit of pre- backcourt pressure to try and just make them take a few extra seconds off because of that. Because otherwise, yeah, you don't want to give LeBron a, a full uh, 17 seconds to dice you up. Right, yeah, I agree for sure. I mean, I think that that's partially where George Hill comes in. Not having him against the Pacers really uh, bothered the Cavs from a turnover perspective. Um, You know, they only turned the ball over on 8.2% of their possessions uh, against the Raptors, which is elite. Um, They've only turned the ball over on 12.9% of the possessions with Hill on the floor in the playoffs. And they've really been a low-turnover team since George, George Hill joined the fold at the trade deadline. Well, great stuff, Mike. I really appreciate it. He is Mike Zavano. You can find him at uh, MZAVAGNO11 on Twitter. Uh, and check him out at Fear the Sword and listen to him at Cavalitics NBA. Mike, thanks for coming on the show. And don't go anywhere, sports fans. We'll be right back after this break on the B-Ball Breakdown. It's the B-Ball Breakdown with Coach Nick on SB Nation Radio. Coming to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Coach Nick. And we are back. This is the B-Ball Breakdown. I am Coach Nick. If you don't know, I run a thing called B-Ball Breakdown. As a result, this is called the B-Ball, B-Ball Breakdown. And we are talking a lot of playoffs. We've already gone through some terrific stuff uh, in the past hour with uh, our other guests about the Sixers and about the Cavaliers. And it's time to turn our focus to the other side of the coin, the Boston Celtics, who are up 3-1, couldn't quite close the deal the other night, yesterday, against the Sixers. So nobody, no better person to bring in on the show than best friend of the breakdown, Jared Weiss, who covers the NBA and covers the Celtics, excuse me, for the Athletic. So, Jared, are you there? Are you on? Are you on the beach? Is that what I'm? Uh, I understand. Yep. No shirt. No shoes. No worries whatsoever. Just out here on the beach on Cape Cod, getting ready for heading back to the city tomorrow night for uh, Game Five. Well, hey, I'm, no. glad it, I'm glad I went another game so I can at least go back uh, to Game Five. That'll sure. Well, no shoes, no shirt, but plenty of service. So let's get into it here. Uh, there's a lot of Celtics fans that were really upset about the, re- the officiating in the game four uh, with the, the added complication or added um, you know, idea that perhaps the NBA is simply trying to avoid a sweep to get more games. Thoughts? Uh, it's funny. I've had like three people ask me about this today just in passing. Um, I'm, not, I'm not one to espouse conspiracy theories on the officiating. We know there's been issues in the past. I mean, the Donaghy scandal, it's going to take a couple generations before we can really shake that one off. And, I mean, I'm not, not to pinpoint Scott Foster or anything, but Scott Foster has been 
kind of looped into that whole thing based on hearsay over the years. But I, I'm gonna I, I prefer to operate on the idea that the refs are trying as best as possible to call things fairly, and there's not a fixes in type of thing going on. Especially since David Stern is no longer the uh, commissioner, I wouldn't be as concerned about that. Um, you know, like how how I looked at especially that game. You know, Celtics fans freaked out because I think it was an eleven to one differential in foul calls in the second quarter. But Philly got called for way more fouls in the second half. Uh, by the end of the game, it was a twenty eight to twenty three differential, which really isn't nearly as stark as it sounds. Um, so, I, I mean, frankly, I felt that the game, the officiating wasn't that. It didn't really stand out as a great officiating game. But it certainly didn't stand out as the Celt- or that the refs are trying to prolong the series. Um, you know, it's like people try to use free throw attempts or number of fouls called as a measurement for whether the game was fairly officiated. You just you simply can't do that because like most of these fouls are properly called. This game was a lot more physical by design, as much as from the fact that it's an elimination game. That's what happens in these games. I think the bigger concern would be like Jalen Brown got a technical and nobody seems to know why he got it. And I still haven't seen an explanation or some sort of like understanding of why he got it. He said after the game that he's planning on contacting the league and protesting it after watching the tape to figure out why the home team in the playoffs almost always gets a benefit of the doubt. That's just how it always goes. I don't even really consider that an issue necessarily. I think it's just more of a natural variance that you're going to see, but I haven't seen anything so far that makes me feel like, that these series are trying to be extended by the officials. Okay, well, that's a lot to unpack. I, you know, it's funny because I feel like you know they don't need to necessarily tell the refs how to referee a certain game to get an outcome, but they, it, it, but who they send ends up being as important. So when you have a, and this is the the the, the crew that's been together for all these games has been um, uh, Scott, Fo- uh, sorry, Foster, Scott Foster, yeah, Scott Foster, and then Tony Brothers. Those two tend to make some of the worst calls of all time, all, no matter when, uh, what time or what, where they are, it doesn't matter. So I'm not surprised. People were on Twitter yelling at me about all these different calls, and I said, well, what do you want? This is, you have two probably of the, of the most problematic referees in the NBA and on the same crew. It's just kind of crazy. Did you, I mean, you saw the T.J. McConnell six seconds in the lane and then score thing, right? Yeah, that was, that was one where I think they kind of miss it there, and maybe that's a good example. Um, although I felt that like when a player has been running through the lane and then catches the ball, I think most refs tend to kind of start the clock from the point that they catch the ball, and that's when it really starts. So I'm not really surprised that he didn't get called for that. And we've seen it go the other way. I think people only really notice it on, you know, with selective bias. So I didn't think that was some sort of example of egregious uh, deliberate non-call, but that wow. could be a reflection of the officials that were out there. Yeah, but, but, I, but again, yeah, I don't even know if it was deliberate. I just think that, like, leave it to Tony Brothers, who was the baseline ref, to, like, maybe, like, forget to start counting. Like, that's what it felt like to me, because if you didn't see it, sports fans, I mean, McConnell was in the lane for three seconds, then he catches the ball. And that's the thing. You might miss the three seconds when the guy's off ball, he's not, doesn't have the ball, but he had the ball then, and he must have done two or three or four spins, uh, uh, turns on the same foot, like faking, 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 and then finally scored on it. So uh, that was a little bit crazy. The Jalen Brown thing was, was crazy. Uh, I'm trying to think of the other calls that people were, were freaking out about. But either way, let's, we can put that away for now because uh, obviously they did some things right. The Sixers did that really hurt the Celtics enough to get that, this win. Um, what are your thoughts on what they did specifically on the court that, uh, that hurt them? 
Oh well, uh, wait, what the Celtics did on the court that hurt them? Well, no. What the what, the, what did Philly do? Was there was there an adjustment that they did? I mean, obviously they changed the starting lineup, but what else? What else hurt that from the Celtics standpoint? Did you feel like oh, okay. they, they didn't do well to, to stop them? Well, I mean, just starting with McConnell and the lineup change. It's for me, it's that. When you have they, – they finally had two good ball handlers and dribble penetrators out on the floor for the first time. And or I'd say two dribble penetrating distributors for the first time, although they obviously had success with it towards the end of the previous game. But having McConnell out there, you could see it very early on. It allowed Simmons to play in his comfort zone, at least in this series, which is him being off ball in the short corner, running down the weak side and using his athleticism to play more like a three than a one. And – I mean, early on, there was uh, just that transition pass where, he th- where uh, McConnell threw that perfect, uh, you know, wide-reaching bounce pass to Simmons in transition. And then a few plays later, McConnell drove through a pick-and-roll, was able to get the defense to collapse on him and dropped it down to uh, Simmons in the short corner. Or I think Brett Brown calls that the end, the, uh, the Chris Anderson Birdman corner, I believe, <laughs> where he just aligns. He'll have, like, whenever, especially whenever Embiid is involved, he'll have Simmons kind of fly down to the weak side short corner and then just, like, it's like it's like putting his feet in the block for like a track runner where he just kind of lines himself up to start sprinting towards the basket as soon as the ball's coming in. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Simmons thrives off of that, and that gets Simmons engaged. So I think McConnell's presence out there, it allowed them to really have the energy to chase down long rebounds, which is one of the ways that they really had the advantage in this game. You know, Steven said they killed them on the glass, especially offensively. They had, I think it was like a 16-6 to offensive rebound advantage. I went back and watched those. Four of those offensive rebounds were blocks that they grabbed, so I wouldn't really even call those offensive rebounds. It's real, those are really pluses for the Celtics. But they still had a ton of long misses that they would be able to chase down, showing a little bit more passion to get to that ball than the Celtics did. Winning the 50-50 ball game, I mean, that's always a, you know, that's always a clear marker that you can go to when you look at, when you're trying to do a post-mortem on how a game was won. And Philly thrives off of that stuff. For sure. I, I, we definitely saw that. And that's, you know, they're desperate. There's nothing to lose. Uh, they're backs to the wall. They have the home crowd. So they're moving to game five. Um, what do you think that the Celtics are going to do to adjust to McConnell, I'm assuming, is going to start again? And what do you think they're going to do to adjust to that defensively? Uh, well, the problem is that they maybe want Shane Larkin out there a little bit more, but he hurt his shoulder against uh, running into Joel Embiid. So his status for the game five is not really clear, but I think they, they maybe would want to match speed for speed. Uh, they really like having Larkin out there because of the offensive energy he brings and because he's such a pesk uh, defensively, but he also can get taken advantage of on switches. But being out there with McConnell, I think that helps neutralize the vulnerability that they have when Larkin is out there. So it'll be interesting to see how that happens, but they're probably just going to want to play as many small guys as possible at a time whenever McConnell was sharing the floor there was Simmons and uh, Smart has been matched up with Redick for the most part. He's done a pretty solid job on Redick, although I think Redick overall has had a pretty good series, especially considering who he's going up against. But this is the first game where I think Smart really shut him down. But it was really made up for it by the fact that McConnell was so good. And then Sharic finally had that real breakthrough game to play at the level that he was playing at earlier in the playoffs. So for them, I think it's probably just trying to get more physical with Sharic not letting him get offensive rebounds, not letting him score near the rim, and then um, closing out the shooters a little bit better. I mean, Philly didn't have that good of a three-point shooting game. I think uh, the Celtics actually hit more threes than they did. So, you know, I think it's it's mostly just reducing second-chance opportunities. 
Okay, fair enough. That's, and, and that's interesting because, again, this, with the starting lineup with McConnell, you wouldn't necessarily think that like, that's going to give them the advantage for more offensive rebounds. But it would, the Jalen Brown didn't start. Uh, Marcus Smart started instead in the backcourt. Uh, I know Brown has been kind of ailing with a little bit of a hamstring issue. Was that the specific reason why he didn't start, or they wanted to have Smart in the lineup? I, I'm not 100% sure at this point. I think it's, one, they wanted to give Jalen a little bit of a break, especially after he played so many minutes in that overtime game. I think that was probably a big factor. He blew past his minutes limit. I think he played 29 minutes or so. Uh, so they're trying to you know take it easy, especially with them being up 3-0. They could get away with at least one game of putting Jalen on the bench and making that sacrifice. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's that they knew Rogier was going to be matched up on, uh, matched up on McConnell. And they need smart matched up on Reddick. So I think it's probably more of a defensive matchup thing more than anything. So I wouldn't be surprised if they stick with that starting lineup for game five. Really? Okay. Because to me, it feels like Brown Brown could really bother uh, Reddick with his length and his athletic ability. Um, although, in my but, mind's eye, I'm trying to picture that right now. I'm not seeing it. Was that, has that been the case? Uh, no, because even before the injury, I think that uh, while Jalen is a good tracking defender, uh, JJ's just on a different level, and he's had trouble navigating what JJ can do to him. Mm-hmm. So I think, especially considering the hamstring injury, there's just no way that you put him on him for extended minutes. And there's been a few times where he's gotten matched up on Reddick, and I think Reddick was able to lose him pretty easily. Okay, well, fair enough. Let's let's get into the uh, the nitty gritty because you know they're up three one. Let's just pretend that they win the series, and we got uh, briefly. What is your take on uh, the Celtics-Cavs series? What, what's going to happen in that series? Uh, who do you think is going to win and how many games? You can't pick against LeBron ever until he gets to the finals. And certainly not when Kevin Love is finally getting it together and they seem to have figured out a rotation uh, by basically excommunicating all the guys that they traded for except for George Hill. It'll be interesting to see if Ronnie Hood gets out of the doghouse after he basically quit on the team there. But, um, I mean, they, match, they, they built the team to match up against LeBron. And... Luke Morris is a solid matchup. Horford can match up a little bit there. Marcus Smart has proven that he can, you know, he can certainly go up against LeBron, maybe not the entire game, but in certain situations he can. And they're counting on Jalen to uh, be able to bulk up a little and handle LeBron hitting him. I don't know if the hamstring is going to prevent that from happening, but it's really bad timing. And I think that's maybe a big part of why they wanted to start or maybe let Jalen get off the bench and play a little less minutes in that last game is because they want him to you know, get rid of the soreness and get the hamstring strengthened up more and more to be ready for Sunday, assuming it happens on Sunday that they play Cleveland. So, I mean, if they match up. I mean, they have the defensive versatility to match up against any of these teams. They can match up against Philly. They've done a good job at that. They can do the same against uh, Cleveland. I mean, Horford obviously can guard Kevin Love, and Marcus Morris can as well. I assume this is going to mean less Aaron Baines. He might be out there, I guess, in some of Tristan Thompson's minutes. But they're going to go back to more Shemi Ojale like they did in the first rounds. took them a little while to really rely on Shemi Ojale. We saw more of him in game four. But he's the guy that they need to be able to switch on to LeBron. And especially if they're going to be in switching schemes. And they might have Ojale at the five even in those situations. Or maybe you could consider Horford at the five, but Ojale is the guy that can switch between Love and LeBron and be able to do a good job of both of them. 
Well, uh, we'll have to see what happens. There's certainly uh, lots to go over there. We'll have to find out what happens with the Celtics and the Sixers first. But, Jerry, thanks for coming on the show. You can always find him over at The Athletic covering the uh, Celtics. Oh, and find him on Twitter at Jared Weiss with two S's. At, sorry, Jared Weiss NBA on Twitter. So, Jared, thanks for coming on the show. And don't go anywhere, sports fans. We'll be right back on the B-Ball Breakdown. It's the B-Ball Breakdown with Coach Nick on SB Nation Radio. Coming to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Coach Nick. So there you have it, sports fans. We are right now in the middle of some great games going on right now. The Jazz and the Rockets and also the Pelicans and the Warriors are coming up, so don't miss that. But stay with me for another minute until we're done. We had a great show. Brady Klopfer, a writer for B-Ball Breakdown and SB Nation, came on and broke down some really interesting things about the Sixers and whether or not they can get back in this series. And I don't know. I don't think they're going to you know, actually win this series, but maybe they win in one more game and make it into a six-game series. And that also is really valuable to a young team and their experience. So that's all good for them no matter what happens. And they will definitely learn from a lot of their mistakes they made, and there certainly were an abundance of those. Mike Savano came on from the Fear the Sword and Cavalitics podcast and really gave us an in-depth analysis on what's going on from the Cavs' perspective on the court. Always great stuff there. Uh, he has a great eye for the X's and O's and what's happening. So, again, the Cavaliers surprised us, I guess, and saved the best for last. I don't think they were hiding it. I just think it took them this long to kind of finally get uh, clicking a little bit better with their lineups and figure out who and what not to play. Uh, and certainly they were surgical in their attack of the Raptors' defense. I did a, vi- a video on that the other day uh, and just showed how over and over again they would identify who they wanted to score or who they wanted to shoot against whom, and they would set it up ruthlessly every single time down, which was in stark contrast to the Raptors, and I showed that as well, how they didn't really seem to have a plan. They weren't prepared and they certainly weren't prepared for LeBron James to uh, to score on them like they were. I know they wanted to go one on one. You kind of think, you know let let him get his, but I don't know. I think you got to mix it up. You got to do a healthy dose of double teaming and just changing uh, defenders and trying to give him different looks to try and keep him off balance uh, and be extra physical with him. Otherwise, he can win the game uh, by himself and he can lead a run that will knock the game out of reach for you in the third quarter and that's it. So it doesn't work at all if you don't you know if you want to just try and stop everybody else. Jared Weiss, best friend of the breakdown, came on and just did a really great deep dive on the Celtics as well. Uh, exciting to see what's going on there. I did a Brad Stevens breakdown and showed just what kind of an advantage they have with him calmly uh, running the show and not getting too upset and keeping them on even keel and understanding how they keep fighting it back no matter what. And they're always so well prepared on their out-of-timeouts plays. They run fantastic stuff, and they usually get really good shots. Uh, and that's the real big key in the playoffs. It's, that's an easy 10 points a game right there that you can get extra if you work on it. So another great show. Thanks so much for bre- joining us. Uh, I, again, am Coach Nick. And you always check me out on the B-Ball Breakdown channel on YouTube. And we'll be right back here again next Tuesday on the B-Ball Breakdown.